Hi everybody, thanks for downloading the Fantasy Animation Podcast, brought to you as always by the Fantasy Animation Research Network. If you enjoy the show and you would like to support our endeavours, there's many ways for you to do that. You can follow us on Twitter um, at FanAnimResearch, that's F-A-N-A-N-I-M Research, um, and you can follow our latest news and tweets on that. Uh, you can access our website at fantasy-animation.org and participate in any of the blog posts. You can get involved in the comments section. We really like you to get involved in the conversations we're trying to start. That would be great. You can uh, offer to contribute a blog at some point further down the line. We're particularly looking for film reviews or book reviews anytime. So if you fancy uh, dopping your hand as a film critic or a film reviewer, please do get in touch then. Or alternatively, if you just like the show and you want to help us to make it even better, you can leave us a review on either of the podcast networks you've downloaded it from. Uh, anything like that will help us increase our visibility on the site. Or, of course, recommend it to your friends and family. Anyway, I'll let you enjoy the show. Hello everyone and welcome to uh, the latest fantasy animation podcast with me Chris Holiday and me Alex Sargent. Uh, for this next instalment we're sort of moving um, moving to Japan as it were. Mm-hmm. We are uh, taking a look at My Neighbor Totoro. So this is uh, a film by Studio Ghibli from 1988. Um, so sort of a nice counterpoint to, to Who Framed Roger Rabbit which we did um, earlier on. So this is a, a film that is towards the beginning of Studio Ghibli's um, uh, history or certainly an early an early film in their an early entry in their history uh, and is uh, a film that sort of engages with what we think fantasy animation in a in a slightly in a slightly different way so its rhetoric of fantasy is is slightly different um, so for this week we'll be kind of taking you through the film scene by scene um, explaining its relevance within a sort of fantasy context but also anchoring it to some key to some key issues within animation and animation studies. Yeah, and I think perhaps before we start we should probably just do a couple of sentences on on Studio Ghibli and and is it first of all and you can get this sorted for me right now is it Ghibli or Ghibli? I've I've heard both. I've heard Something else. What else have you heard? Um, Ghibli. 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 That's, yeah. can't, that can't be right. That's so, French. I mean, let's go with Studio Ghibli. Right, we're going to go with Studio Ghibli. Yes. Um, perhaps we should sort of give a few sentences on who Studio Ghibli are, because they've got a really interesting place within sort of popular culture, within the history of animation. They're sort of very... I'm sure there's a lot of listeners who already know who they are and are very familiar with their films. I myself have seen a few, but actually this is my first time seeing My Neighbour Totoro. But even then, I sort of had heard of this movie. If I'm right in thinking, isn't Totoro the sort of mascot of yes. the studio? So, can you should we just unpack who this, uh, who these people are, and, yes. and why they're important to talk about? So, I think certainly, perhaps for a, for a Western audience, Studio um, Ghibli Ghibli, Ghibli mm-hmm. uh, represents Japanese animation uh, as a whole, and actually, in some ways, that's misleading. It sort of has the same relationship. Ghibli's to Ghibli, they have the same relationship to Japanese animation as Disney has to sort of um, North American animation and sort of cartoon or tradition. So for many Western audiences, they are the face of Japanese animation. So they're a Japanese animation film studio based in, in Tokyo. And their origins date from sort of the early 1980s. So their unofficial first film, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind from 1984, was sort of really, it's sort of seen as the, the key starting point for, for the studio. So founded um, most notably by Hayao Miyazaki um, and Toshio Suzuki and Isio Takahata, who recently passed away. So they're sort of, 
within the cultural consciousness. They're also in the cultural consciousness because Miyazaki likes to retire and then come out of retirement at various intervals. Uh, and at the recent Society for Animation Studies um, uh, conference, one of the quiz questions at the annual quiz was how many times has Miyazaki retired and come out of retirement? So it, he's sort of uh, it's it's got its uh, its own sort of um, mythology and and but it, it sort of releases these very popular, largely cell animated um, anime films. It's sort of, many of its films are very well known. So kind of going through, we've got Princess Mononoke, perhaps one of the most um, celebrated is Spirited Away. But they are often seen as the the Japanese Japanese Disney. They currently have a, a really strong industrial relationship with Pixar, and it's the Pixar studio that helps to um, work on the uh, English language dubbing and release, or the the Western release of these films. And I should flag up that the version of Totoro that we watched was the original dub, uh, the original um, Japanese language version but, with subtitles. But I'll also flag up if you hear any clips at any point from the movie, and you should do if I get off my arse and do some work uh, they'll be from the dub version obviously for our English speaking listeners so yes so this is uh, as I said My Neighbor Totoro comes towards the, the beginning of um, Studio Ghibli's life uh, and what's interesting about it is that it's in a double feature so it's actually or was released alongside another film um, Grave of the Fireflies so Grave of the Fireflies um, is a slightly more serious in tone it focuses largely on the impact of uh, nuclear war. So it's set in the city of Kobe uh, and it's about, like Totoro, it's about familial relationships. A lot of Ghibli films are about um, the relationship between uh, father and daughter, mother and father and sisters. I was actually going to ask you that question. A, a few of the features of this, of the sort of studios of Studio Jablay, um, yes. that catalogue yes. seems to be um, emerging here. So it's cell animation as opposed to digital or stop motion. Yes. Um, and they've been one of the leading proponents of that sort of still internationally, yeah? Yes. Um, they, 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 what, I mean, what are, what are the other features of sort of a, a typical Studio Jablay uh, Yes. Um, this is going to get interesting in the, the, the different <laughs> ways that we can pronounce this. Um, what actually on the note of cell animation, what's uh, a lot of a lot of um, Japanese anime scholars have kind of positioned this film certainly within the the, the 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 Ghibli corpus, thinking about cell animation and its particular aesthetics. But at the same time, um, the studio, while it has certainly been a proponent of of traditional technique, has worked with with CGI. And in the mid '90s, it was very interested in using emergent digital technology. I should also flag up the technique of cell shading or tune shading, which is using computer animation and digital effects to look like cell animation. So actually a lot of um, Ghibli's films are computer animated, but they are like the same as The Simpsons, they are cell shaded or tune shaded, which means that they have a flat rather than three dimensional quality. Um, one of the perhaps the key strands or the key currents of uh, Ghibli as a studio is its relationship to nature. So there's quite a nostalgic view of nature. There are again many Japanese um, anime scholars such as Susan Napier have tried to mark out perhaps some of the genres of anime or some of the, the dominant imagery uh, and, and anime is really split between technology, kind of apocalyptic technology, uh, techno-futurism uh, and these sort of really calm natural landscapes uh, right. and so a lot of, of Ghibli's films I'm thinking of um, Wind, Wind Rises and its version of The Borrowers, Arietti, The Secret Life of Arietti um, are full of kind of natural imagery and certainly I think we get this with, with Totoro, the way that the film starts 
um, the place of nature and the fact that the film isn't really about technology, it's not something like Akira, it's not something like Ghost in the Shell, it's, it's a yeah. different kind of, it's not mecha, it's, it's the, the, the world of the organic. I hadn't thought about that distinction between those very two clear types of sort of cycles of anime, but that's really, that's really fascinating to learn. From my perspective, uh, watching it as not an expert on, on the studio's back catalogue, um, but from my, with my fantasy hat on, uh, the one thing I do know about Miyazaki is he's um, seen as being very influenced by East, a sort of East, East, East meets West sort of tradition of uh, of influences. So for my, I know you mentioned the Ariete, which is an adaptation of the Borrowers. Yeah, I know he's also very influenced by the writings of Ursula Le Guin. In fact, didn't he make his Howl's Moving Castle? No, Tales from Earthsea is is um, an adaptation of Le Guin's uh, books. Um, he's also influenced by classic. Victorian literature, so things like Alice in Wonderland are within the background in a lot of his works, particularly the sort of his recurring feature of the sort of adventurous young heroine, uh, Spirited Away has a lot of plus of that. So I was yep. very interested in watching the movie about how the film felt like a very sort of interesting meditation or numeration on a lot of classic Western fantasies mm. and and I think there's lots to say as we watch uh, well I've got a lot to say certainly about um the way it represents childhood the relationship between childhood and fantasy yeah. in, in the in the film and and the way it uses fantasy um within its tropes I think it's a really um interesting movie actually it would be no stretch to say that Miyazaki makes uh, animated fantasies uh, his films are yeah. very famously very clearly quite durably dis defined uh, as these are animated fantasies there's animated fantasy films so hopefully what we can do is think about where the fantasy is in that it, in some cases it's obvious as you say it's through processes of, of adaptation but it will be interesting and now with my um, well now with me borrowing your fantasy hat I watch these films and I'm and I'm seeing the fantasy more and more. I'm seeing how we can engage with something like Totoro, not just at the level of, of form but of content. And I'm I'm thinking about so I immediately was thinking kind of Portal Quest fantasy. But yeah, we'll get yeah, into yeah. that. Terrific, sure. Well, yeah, that teases things up nicely. So so let's I guess we should run down the, the basic sort of plot. Yes. Um, this is going to involve a lot of pronunciation issues, and my apologies to um, all. To our Japanese listeners. listeners. Yeah, well, all listeners who are better at this than our, well, I am. And I, and I think uh, a recurring trend on this podcast would be me attempting to pronounce names, and I'm so bad at it. Uh, so, basically, the story is about a family yes. uh, moving into a new home at the beginning. Yes, yes. Uh, the family consists of, well, it's, it's classic sort of two children um, family, mother and mother and father, except mother is in hospital. Yes. Uh, we don't actually learn that till a bit further on. We start off learning that with the fa the father is sort of on his own. We wonder, then, so it's father with two young children, uh, ta uh, sat Tatsuki, yes. Tatsuki and Mai. Yeah. Um, Tatsuki being sort of slightly older. Yes. I'm trying to think how old. So she would be, I think she would fit in within the kind of character archetype of the, the shoujo. So this sort of in-between female figure that is not yet a child mm -hmm. and, and not an adult. And there's lots of writing around the figure of the shoujo. And the shoujo um, recurs a lot within the Ghibli films. Okay. Perhaps the most obvious would be Kiki's Delivery Service and Spirited Away. So Suzuki so is a character who's very much of that 
type. She's very not, much not quite adolescent, not quite prebubescent. But, sort of, but yeah. at that, uh, exploring the world, and it's that kind of sense of exploration within that cultural category of the, the shoujo yeah. that allows the film, through that character, to play with the relationship between the real and, and fantasy. Yeah. And then we also get Mai, who's much younger, she's yes. sick. So it's actually preschool, isn't she? Yes. Sort of, so it must be about five, six, something like that. Yes. Uh, who I have decided is my favourite character, probably ever. Sure. Uh, I really, really went uh, with Mai. I thought she was really, really cool. Um, so Mai is full of this spirited, kind of grumpy, but also very loving uh, young child. Who And the sisters are very close, but at the same time they clash. And they move into this house that's all sort of grimy. They describe it as a haunted house, but not yes. in a particularly... Uh, terrified way they're sort of gleefully happy to be living in a haunted house and basically we learn about this family and their attempt to sort of settle into the local neighborhood they make friends with uh, Nana or Nanny the um, local sort of elder yes. of, of the sort of community and then they start to see various aspirations or encounters with this figure called Totoro yes. um, who let me say these words carefully is a giant sort of bunny rabbity thing with a massive mouth that doesn't really speak but seems to embody some sort of forest god yes. like creature. Yes. So the film and, and one of the interesting things about the film is that it's a period piece, so it's set in the fifties. Yeah. Um, and and so there are some interesting things in the film with regards to the yeah, the role of technology, uh, the role of tradition, the role of modernity. So once the family has moved into the to the house, as you say, we don't really know about the, the mother at this stage. It's really through the characters. And actually, I can imagine with Mai that she she could very easily grow up to be the lead character of Spirited Away. Mm. I can totally see that as a given her relationship with her sister. <clears throat> and actually, the role of childhood and the role of exploration and the way that fantasy is... Um, reacted to by the children as you say when the children first move into the house and they start their exploration and they're looking through um, each individual room and pulling back the doors sliding back the doors and seeing these creatures these dust bunny creatures yeah. that really sets the that plants the seed of their curiosity and then from then on as you say there are references to uh, ghosts uh, there's a line of dialogue are they like goblins or something there's some really interesting they're obviously well versed in fantasy, and they're playing with is this is this a fantasy space? Um, and actually, at no point are the children really scared of this potential. Their their attention, I think, is diverted towards their mother, who's currently in hospital. Fantasy therefore allows them to have a little play with these new surroundings. And what's interesting, actually, is as I say, I'm, I'm I clarify, I'm not an expert on Japanese folk traditions or fantasy storytelling traditions. Um, you've mentioned Susan Napier's work; she's a really great scholar to go through on that. Uh, but but what I um, what I was interested in is is how the film departed from Western traditions, which I am much more. Um, knowledgeable about and what I found very interesting straight away is that this is a very classic Western story in that we have child childhood and the childhood childlike perspective on life being the entryway for both the viewer and the story's engagement with fantasy yeah. you get a lot of you know them cleaning up a room um, that with, with things that aren't necessarily fantastic but they approach it or engage with it as fantastic um, and this is a very well-worn trope within fantasy literature particularly fantasy literature post-Victorian age um, and I want to talk more about that as we get on but there's a very important connection there in that uh, fantasy literature emerges out of romanticism uh, and romanticism is also the 
the the artistic movement or the cultural movement that gives us in our culture um, most of our understandings of what it means to be a child a child as a, as a figure in this world. So if we think about the relationship between children and the imagination, the relationship mm. between children and innocence, all these sort of terms we associate with childhood even to this day, that all comes out of the Romantic era and it comes out of early Romantic literature. I think I've got a lot to say about that as we go on. But I think what struck me straight away with this, um, this opening is that typically in Western um, fantasy literature there is a schism between adult and childhood perspectives. And there is to some extent in this movie yeah. as we go on. Yeah. But what you would get in the Western version of this story, or at least a version of this written by Edith Blyton or, uh, or Lewis Carroll, is you would get the father scolding them for indulging in stories and fairy tales. And you'd get a clash between an adult realist sense of the world and a mm. childhood sense of the world. Interesting we don't get that here. We get the dad... Um, supporting, celebrating, and engaging with their fantasy, and and more than that. So I I, I, I can I can totally see the the narrative template as fantasy is something that's accessible to children in a way that it's not accessible to adults, and and ultimately, um, as you say, the the Enid Blyton version of that story perhaps is that the adult becomes or tries to at least impress logic upon the child who has seemingly left child you know has within childish ways so what's interesting about uh, Totoro is that not only does the father sort of encourage this active um, imagination perhaps with one eye on his wife being in hospital um, it's the kind of figure of the, the nanny so mm-hmm. and so when the children first engaged these sort of fictional um, dust bunnies these dust like spirits that, that sort of populate the corners and crevices of the, the derelict house. Once they've in, the children have engaged with these dust bunnies and then run back into the main sort of open living area and start to explain, then the nanny figure immediately says, oh yeah, they're, they're dust bunnies. And so there's a, the, the somehow fantasy is, is kind of part of the, certainly in the, in the, as embodied by those characters, it's part of the soot spirits are part of this world. Um, and actually, yeah, it's the adults that don't discredit or or try to ridicule the ch- the children. It's that they, they immediately go with it as well. So I found that quite refreshing. And there's no moment in the film at all, actually, where they're no. discouraged from doing no. that. What I mean, the film does play with, is this really happening or is it not? Actually, more so in a way that I think some of the stories I've cited so far would do. In those stories, it's not, you know, in Five Children and It... There's no suggestion that the creature is not yes. um, real, um, whilst there is a little bit of that going on in this film. But at the same time, there isn't a moment that you're waiting where, uh, I'm thinking of something like, say, a more recent example, something like Pan's Labyrinth, where the mother gets exasperated with Ophelia, the child, for indulging in all these stories and shouting at her, saying, they don't exist, stop doing this, this is detrimental to your understanding of reality. Here, there is no moment like that. It's almost, it's, it's much mm-hmm. more permissible to move between the two worlds. And we're certainly invited, so I was thinking about the, f- the, m- the first moment of fantasy, if yeah. you like, in the film, and and so up to a point, this is 1950s Japan, we see kind of cultural markers, or we see um, markers of Japanese-ness, we see the first sequence or the first shot in the film is rice paddies, mm-hmm. so we see rice paddies, we then see a series of, of perhaps events that would fall under the the um, banner of, of tradition. We see certain kinds of work, certain kinds of eating, certain kinds of bathing, certain kinds of um, kind of domestic space. These are traditional spaces. So there comes a point, 
then that would include the dust bunnies. I think the dust bunnies are, are we're invited to read those as part of that world. They are part of the the moment of fantasy for me is the ears poking through the grass. Mm-hmm. Although I would, the dust bunnies are interesting in terms of the animation style. I would mm. argue in that in that they're they're very well designed because they're just on the cusp between an exaggerated feature of a supposedly mimetic or real space yes. and a fantasy creature. So they sort of have eyes, they sort of have a body, but they don't quite have enough for them to be a fantastical yes. creature. So we're, we're, this is obviously a, a hyper-designed and exaggerated world because animation's visual style allows you to do that. And it's sort of using that to sort of depict mm. pictorially what we're talking about narratively, right? In that these dust bunnies look like they could be just balls yes. of dust, but they also look like they could be real fantasy creatures. So the ambivalence that we as, as the audience feel towards, and to some extent the characters feel towards the possibility of fantasy, then becomes part of the way that the dust bunnies are designed. They are that middle ground between it could be, but it might not be. Yeah, I think so. Like When I first saw them, I thought, right, okay, are they what the children are seeing, or are they what everybody is seeing? Yes. Um, actually, maybe they are what everybody's seeing, and maybe they're just hyper-designed so that they're not, you know, in the same way that, you know, food doesn't look like real food in... In an animation, things are simplified, designed, exaggerated, made grotesque, all that kind of stuff. Yes. So I think there is something interesting going on there. And I have a lot to say about uh, liminality and hesitation and all these sort of lovely words as we as we get on. But yeah. perhaps we'll, we'll, we'll carry on with the plot at this point. Yes. Um, so, as I said, the, the, the first... I guess quarter of the film is, is they're moving in and, and, and through the children, the film gets to set the scene quite literally because the, the the house itself is relatively derelict and so it establishes location and through the characters exploring the audience is exploring the film's space and the film's kind of logic to include the dust bunnies clearly satsuki is the the elder of the two children is sort of the head of the household um, the father very interestingly is a university professor and is typically chaotic disordered um, he has books everywhere piles of books on the floor papers um, and so one of the early sequences shows satsuki waking up early and preparing the food for her for her sister and both him and a quick note on that there is a scene in this movie where the father is so engrossed in his studies that he misses lunch that has never happened no, no. to me. If I know anything um, about academics, it's yeah. that they'll eat their three meals a day. Yeah, I will, I will, I will very happily put down the books and eat my food. Yes. Um, um, and so we have a, a clear um, articulation of her character that is as a replacement for the mother. She has taken on the role of the, the kind of matriarch in that sense. Satsuki then goes to school, um, leaving Mai and the father at home. And the father is, as I said, engrossed in his work and is working through papers, sitting at his desk and looking out at Mai as she's starting to explore. And it's during one of her first explorations that she sees these two, what we think a rabbit is in the long grass. What struck me is the transparency of this animal, object, creature, where this creature appears out of the long grass and Mai starts to to chase. And then we have the, the first moment of of potential fantasy where the rules are starting to be manipulated ever so slightly and and, and my is, is the conduit through which we are now seeing the possible fantasy that exists within this relatively remote location. So Satsuki's at school, 
Um, the father, Tatsuo, is, is busy working, and Mai is sort of exploring and running through the long grass and under and following these animals, uh, and that's really the first encounter that the audience and Mai have with Totoro. Yeah, and I, interesting you use the word rules in that sentence. Yes. Because one of the th- things I noted watching the movie, and, and actually this is a feature of uh, Studio Hible, because the G is silent, as we all know, yeah. um, it, one of their uh, features is that uh, they, I think rules are really interesting in their movies and that I find their movies quite ruleless. Not necessarily in a bad way, but quite often Western fantasy works very hard to quite quickly establish and codify and solidify the ruptures in reality that are taking place. So it would be, you know, again, let's compare this to how I would imagine this is told in a sort of classic Victorian literature way. We would get an immediate explanation of who Totoro is, what his powers are, what he can and can't do, what his limitations are, and then sort of the rupture of possibility is contained and we have a new equilibrium um, established as um, as a scholar called Todorov, who I might talk about in a minute, would would um, would say we get a disequilibrium as the creature is introduced, and then a new equilibrium is established as we get to the end of it. I find Ghibli's movies quite lawless in that respect, in that they don't have that. Like, who I still don't quite get who Totoro is. Yes. I don't get the rules of the world. It doesn't. They don't explain why the cat bus is such an important feature of this world, what the cat bus is, you know, there's all these sort of messiness and lurking, and there's almost, I think dreamlike is the term a lot of people use, or or neric to give it the sort of more fancy scholarly term. Um, uh, Yes, I would say that uh, this film at least works to anchor the first five minutes within a a recognisably Japanese space. Yes. Through these markers of tradition, but also... It, it sort of it needs to establish some form of uh, or some groundwork upon which it can then have have the fantasy. What struck me about this this film is fantasy is both character and space, and so it is it is both a set of intrusive characters, but it is also a space to which the characters visit. It's mm-hmm. it's and so yes, I think there is a certain degree of messiness and. Uh, the fantasy is not really resolved. I've, I, my last note on the film is fantasy still exists at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, the last shot of the film is of, of, of Totoro. There's never a, sort of a resolution that Totoro was real, was unreal, was a, um, a figment of their imagination. It, it, it can't be a figment of their imagination because logically... That can't, that can't happen. I, 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 don't, I don't mean the th- whole film is I think the fantasy in the film is lawless. In a good way, actually. I think it, the unruliness is interesting. If this, you know, let's compare this with uh, Aladdin. Yeah, Aladdin discovers a magic lamp and rubs it, and suddenly there is a genie of omnipotent power and skill that emerges. We have a rupture in a reality taking place. And then immediately what happens is, right, here I am, I'm a genie, my purpose is to give you three wishes, you're only allowed three, and suddenly rules are introduced, yes. and, and, and this... Being this creature of omnipotence and power and, and absolute freedom of possibility is suddenly confined to a very clear narrative purpose and key role. You never get that with Totoro. I don't. Totoro is left to be this figure of possibility and freedom. And the fantasy sequences sometimes they fly about, sometimes they get, a, you know, a cat bus. Sometimes they just sort of appear as a momentary. It's all very lawless and 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 there aren't these set introduce laws. I found it endearing in that respect, but it is very different.
sorry everybody, we're just going to interrupt the podcast for a second there, because uh, I want to talk about ratings, Chris. What do you mean PG, 12, 12A, 15, 18, that kind of thing? Uh, I mean, sure, we can talk about that too, but, but actually I wanted to talk about iTunes ratings and how you rate this podcast on iTunes and the reasons why you would. I'd rate it very good. Put that in you. Well, that, that would be good too, except you can't do that. The only way you can rate it is to go on the iTunes store in the podcast info, click ratings, and give us a very quick star review, and then a, a nice quick sentence review in the comments section. If you do that, that will increase our visibility on the store, and that means we're more likely to attract more audience members, which means more exciting conversations for the future. Okay, so what you're saying is, is that listeners... Give us the five stars and then sit back and listen to the show. Well, implicitly, yes, but explicitly, yes, too. Gotcha. We should probably get back to the show now. Yeah, let's get back to the show. I'm wondering the role that the children are playing in this and, and child or adolescent subjectivity and... Um, and again, many many scholars of, of Japanese uh, anime have have reflected on the role of kind of flying, what flying actually means within the context of these kinds of, of, of animated films. Uh, again, Kiki's delivery service, the exuberance of the shoujo youth is is manifest through her ability to to fly and deliver all these these items and objects and artifacts. Yes, I agree. I think the, 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 if the, the real or, or if what we are invited to read as the real of the film is bound by a certain degree of order that is rooted in the cultural Japanese-ness of the, of the um, setting, at the same time, the fantasy doesn't give us anything to... The fantasy is, or the fantasy elements, the fantastic elements are things that constantly move and change shape figuratively and, and kind of um, literally this idea that the fantasy itself is something that the children can't quite get their hands on and so we can't quite yeah. get our hands on it and, and figure out the rules and, and what yeah one what Totoro is and, but also how he how he relates to the to the real world it's, it's as much about how the fantasy relates to the real as how the real is invested in the fantasy how is how we, how are we invited to read the fantasy as a set of characters and as a space, given that it sometimes appears and sometimes doesn't? That sequence where they're dancing around the trees and the trees start to grow and grow, and then the next morning the tree isn't there. Um, these are things that are very un- the, the world of the film charged by the fantasy is very unstable, but that doesn't make it incoherent in a strange way. It doesn't make it it's lawless and messy, but it doesn't make it hard to follow. Yeah, I don't think. I think the film is very, um, the film is very linear in some senses. It's very um, conventional. It's very, uh, I guess, it, there's never a sense in which I feel that things are dreams. I feel like everything is happening, but it's because it's media. The role of the child as as the main character it does does something to the fantasy. Are we witnessing the world through their eyes? I don't know. Yeah, no, I agree. I think, I think. I thought you put it very well when you said that they're, they're trying. We always feel like we are trying to keep up with the fantasy or, or, or contain the fantasy. It never can be. The children are always trying to work out the rules. Although actually, I say that I don't think the kids math, they don't care. But the film is always mm. asking us to try and work out the rules of something that remains ruleless. Um, so and we that's know very interesting. We know that these aren't. The film tells us that, that the dust bunnies aren't ghosts. That 
the uh, Totoro is not a goblin. Um, there's a moment where the characters are laughing about keeping the bogeyman away because they want to. They want to. They're scared of particular. The children are never scared. They're, what they're scared of is the weather and the isolation of being on their own. The children are never scared of the fantasy. Nor do they need it to make sense. They don't no. know who is this person. What are you doing? Oh, you can grow now. What? How can you do that? So that's interesting that the the, the children don't need the fantasy to make sense. And I'm wondering whether that again is really about the issue of trauma. That these are and and the film has been read a lot in terms of the children using fantasy as a way of processing the trauma of having to move away, and that their mother is in the hospital. Yeah, I thought about that a little bit watching it. I think there are certain visual elements and storytelling elements that invite that kind of almost Freudian. Yes. Um, this is a dream, and we're trying to interpret the dream to find out its real reality. Um, and there, for example, I, I couldn't help notice that um, Totoro is very much sort of uh, appears with the absence of a parent figure, yes, um, and sort of replaces that. We get what I found interesting. We, 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 there are three. Are there three Totoros, or at least three strange bunny creatures? Yes, there is the the sort of t- the main Totoro, Totoro One, Totoro One, uh, Max Totoro, and then there are certainly then there's yeah Totoro Zero and yeah, yeah. Diet Totoro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The <laughs> now, there's certainly a couple of of smaller animals or smaller creatures mm. um, uh, that are rabbit-like. Yeah, and certainly that's how um, my immediately sees them. Uh, yes, it's again, but that again that's undefined. But, but again, does but, it but it also I couldn't help think again with my sort of you know quasi cod psychoanalytic hat on we've got the massive Totoro and then we have a slightly smaller slightly smaller than the child figure and then a tiny one and I couldn't help thinking of my Tatsuki and the father in terms of the the three relationships between the three of them Uh, we get uh, things like the cat bus mirroring the real bus in real life it always happens at a moment of trauma and a moment of hallucinogenic and I think there are certain ways in which you could if you wanted to start to interpret the meaning behind the fantasy but then at the same time it's a cat bus and I don't understand that there's no it's not quite as mirrored as that and I think there is still I think that ignores a lot of the slipperiness and the uh, indulgence in a good way I'm not using the word bad but the indulgence in the fun of magical characters going on here so I think the film is therefore really cleverly cleverly organised and plotted because we have the dust bunnies that are Framed as not something that only the children see, the nannies. Note these are part of the world. Yeah. Then we have um, a hint that the Totoro might be a dream or might be fictitious because when my first visits and meets Totoro and, and kind of sleeps and, and um, sleeps on his on his his its stomach. Sure. When my first sleeps on Totoro's stomach. The next scene involves her being woken up and she's lying on the floor. And so the film is giving little hints that, okay, so the dust bunnies are now part of the world. Totoro, that was probably a dream. And then this, then, and then we, then we go to the nth degree. And so the the fantasy itself is treated. I think we're invited to to read the fantasy as either part of the world or entirely fictitious. And this is all happening within my mind. And then we get the cat bus, which is the actually the bit that. I don't understand. Yeah, exactly. And I'm not, I'm not sure it's meant to be understood. Am I going to have to talk about to talk, um, at, Am I going to have to about my 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 friend Todorov at this point? Yes. Um, my neighbour Todorov. My neighbour Todorov. I th- I think I I mean all right. So Todorov is a key fantasy theorist. Actually, a theorist of something called the fantastic. And very very briefly, 
it's a very theory that I'm very interested in. It's a theory of what he calls fantasy as hesitation. And the argument is that there are lots and lots and lots and lots of stories whereby um, an event happens that ruptures the reality of the fiction taking place, actually ruptures the reality of what we would understand as reality. So um, uh, we are recording a podcast and... Chris rubs a magic lamp and a genie pops out. Uh, when that happens, you are presented with two possible ways of making sense of that rupture and returning yourself to an equilibrium as opposed to a disequilibrium, as I talked about earlier. One is something he calls the uncanny, which is you accept that you are seeing something that is not real, in which case what you are experiencing is a crisis of perception, not a crisis of worldview. Um, the world still makes sense, you just can't access it properly. Or you experience something called the marvellous, which is that the world um, doesn't make sense, you haven't understood it properly because you are actually living in a world where genies exist. So either you have to change your understanding of the world or you have to change your understanding of your own understanding of that world. And a lot of fantasy, or at least a lot of what he calls the literature of the fantastic, plays with that through a period of hesitation. You are asked during the fiction to move between those two states and remain uncertain, and that's where the power dynamic relies. Having said all that, and having just sort of gone on that lengthy spiel, I'm sure I'll mention Todoroff again on this podcast at some point, I'm not quite convinced that applies to this kind of story. And, and I'll propose that what we get here is a story of the marvellous. I don't think there is much in this that is asking us to think that what we are seeing on screen are hallucinations, or at least not take that seriously much longer. But what we get instead, and I think we've hinted at in this lawlessness quality of the fantasy, is almost a hesitation in the marvellous, in that what you get is that, okay, I need to re-understand the laws of the world of the fiction that I'm watching, except at no point do we get the opportunity to reassert those laws. In fact, if anything, as the fiction goes on, those laws become harder and harder to grasp. It would be interesting to see moments in which these these creatures appear, because the the, the sort of the second extended moment where Totoro appears is at the bus stop, and one of the film's iconic images is the two children and Totoro waiting in the rain at the bus stop for their father. Well, certainly the two children are waiting for the father Tatsuya to come back from work. He doesn't appear. Uh, Mai then falls asleep on Satsuki's back, and Totoro then appears. Um, and so I'm just, I'm just wondering because I thought that that was a moment where we're now in a sort of dream state, and and maybe the film's failure to divide or make a distinction between what what we are seeing, what the children are seeing, what is only visible to them, what is only accessible to them, is part of where the the messiness comes from. It's all sort of. Um, meld together and, and ultimately the fantasy is something that is very difficult to trace and attribute logic to you're yeah you're kind of he you're hesitating and, and and I wonder do the characters hesitate do the characters no well they, no that's no. The, that's the key thing is that yeah. Todorov's argument would be that that happened that the key the, one of the fundamental ways in that happens is that the character hesitates so you're you're reading it so the fall of the house of usher a classic edgar Allan poe ghost story um, a character is, is narrating an event and you don't know whether the character has gone mad or whether they are living in a haunted house that doesn't happen here there is no yeah. hesitation within the narrative so it's really what you bring to it as a viewer that we're talking about here and then we're into some really slippery things surrounding cultural context uh, all this kind of stuff as to you know how you how one wants to rationalise what they see, 
I get the I get the feeling if we were you know reading an interview with Miyazaki, he'd be very he would be very keen for us to do that. Yes, I think it's the role of. I mean, I'm 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 looking at uh, some of the stuff around the film in terms of the relationship between modernity and nostalgia. Um, it's creation of a fantastic fantasy world that is strangely believable and marks the collision between supernatural elements and real world markers and I, and it's it seems to be that the, the world itself is entirely dreamlike and therefore the the world itself is open and accessible to the children as um desiring a certain kind of fantastic retreat and it feels like as part of their working through of their trauma or as part of their dislocation from their complete family structure we're led to believe because the mother is in hospital that the the relocation to to a new space that they're unfamiliar with and that they wish to explore allows them to um start playing with the fantasy of this unknown space so they don't hesitate because the fantasy is not something that intrudes upon them it's something that originates from them so why would they why would they hesitate why would they why would they be strange feel strange towards the appearance of a creature if the creature itself is not part of their own i don't know it feels like the children are quite central to this in terms of the way that the fantasy in the film is managed it's the children that are the center, and this is, you know, this is typical of, of, of Ghibli. If we think of something like *Spirited Away*, that the fantasy is something that is certainly positioned to emanate from the child character, and it's it's because of that that we don't fail to believe that Totoro is is real to them. It's it's typical of Jai Bibelai, but it's also typical of just fantasy West, like fantasy literature. Yeah, fantasy literature is the literature told from the child's perspective. And I would stress it that way. That, I mean, the thing I thought about a little bit was um, I'm glad you book because I wanted to talk about the representation of childhood. There's yes. a great book by um, Ewan Kirkland on on children's media who argues something very important that I think has stuck with me ever since I've read it, which is this idea that we talk about childhood and children is the only social category we don't talk about as a social category. So unlike something like gender or race or disability or anything like this, where there are certain biological realities to deal with, but largely you're talking about a cultural social construct, the same is true of childhood, right? There is no, there is no child's way of viewing the world. There is no children. There is only a social category of children. And, and his argument is, why don't we talk about children's literature like that and I think the other key thing to that is it's the only social well it's not the only social category that gets this problem we're, we're having a, a worldwide conversation about the lack of diversity of storytellers right now but it is one of it's, it's, it's one that we don't question quite as much is why do why do all children's stories get told to them by adults telling them what children are like yeah um, so so I'm thinking about this film and how it presents what childhood is and to me, it has some of the elements of what I might call sort of, you know, very cod-like and very generalised Western fantasy. So an association between fantasy and child children, um, a, a, a more sort of imaginative sensibility. But I think one of the key things that struck me here is also a much closer relationship to the natural world and to nature. Yes. That's something in certain fantasy movies and fantasy stories in the sort of UK, Europe, US tradition, but it's not quite as prevalent in here. Here, it's very much the adults are, are separated for, from the natural world. Yeah, the fantasy spaces are the 
forests. Yes. The, the, the untamed places, whilst the adults spend their life in houses or in gardens or on cultivated rice fields and things like that. Yes. Lots of the film takes place outside. Yeah. Uh, and actually the division between inside and outside space is certainly within their home because of the sliding doors is rendered imperceptible so the inside becomes the outside but the father is very much working in a series of interior spaces so his office uh, and his his university space the children are free to explore under through across all these really interesting under a tree through a sort of like a portal that connects one natural space to another natural space um, and so certainly they have the film has its its own connection to nature uh, the children have a connection to nature there's one instance and this returns us to the cat bus there's one instance where I'm the, so glad we're back to the cat bus yeah, so I'm very pleased uh, to be next to the cat stop bus. this again um, there's one line where I think it's Satsuki says when towards the end of the film, where they've boarded the cat bus and they are, do you want to just set up the? We haven't got. Let's get to the ending. So, well, the ending yes. is. So once, um, so Maya has has uh, disappeared, and so the remaining sort of twenty five minutes of the film is Satsuki running around trying to find her, and she's disappeared very interestingly because she wants to bring these vegetables that Nanny Nanny has told her. Is are really really sort of life restoring. She wants to take them to her mum, so she's trying to walk to the hospital but gets lost. She ha she also has a, a falling out with her sister, um, and ultimately Maya then goes off and, and is lost. Then the final act of the film is is trying to find this this missing child and Tatsuki. You know, it's, it's very uh, energetic. She's she's a character on the in fact she's a character on the move throughout the whole film. She's often running to places. Um, and keeping very very busy and that perhaps feeds into her role as, as head of the household so with the mother not in good health it's left to, to, to Satsuki to, to, and the father seemingly um, unable to organise his personal and professional life yeah. it's up to the oldest uh, daughter to try and find the, the younger the younger child and this really sets the scene for the final um, the final act where Satsuki must call on the fantasy to resolve the narrative um, and so you through Totoro and through meeting Totoro and she, she decides to enter into this porthole she finally meets Totoro they have a, a sort of I'll, I'll use the word conversation quite loosely um, and just to pause there it's really interesting I haven't mentioned this thus far we haven't got time to go into it much is lot, almost all the interactions with um, Totoro and the creatures are non-verbal yes which is another sort of you know I could start quoting Lacan and signifiers and entrance into the symbolic but I think we're all it's Saturday morning here and I've just had a croissant so I'm not going to do it but there's something non you know interesting between childhood non-verbal and, and, and language being something belonging to the adult world yes but yeah I wonder whether, but that. I wonder whether that's, that's what we call a foot, an audio footnote. Yeah, yes. everybody. Um, um, for further, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. But uh, is that something? See the mirror stage. Yeah. Um, <laughs> is there something to do with the way that we engage with fantasy that it's predominantly visual and spatial and experiential? It's not verbal. Well, except that fantasy storytelling is yeah is in, almost entirely verbal. So this film really positions the the, the fantasy as something that is. In the design and the visual style of the the film, Totoro never really speaks. It groans yeah. and makes some kind of noise, um, but they're able to communicate. And ultimately, Satsuki then boards the cat bus and they go off to try and. And this is the cat bus is this floating, flying bus that's a cat um, that is able to change destinations. So the first destination is 
Mai. So they then go and find Mai, and she is sitting um, kind of alone. And that's really a that's kind of a great a great resolution between the two sisters. But it's the first moment where the adults are not able to see the fantasy. The cat bus is the only fantasy thing, fantasy element of the film. And Satsuki says at one point they ca- they can't see the bus. Mm. It's humans, but particularly adults that, that that don't have access to witness the fantasy in the same way as the children. Um, once the two the two sisters are are together again, the destination on the cat bus changes, and it's to the hospital. So they go off to the hospital. Um, now this last scene is very intriguing Mm -hmm. because you have the two children sitting on a branch and a tree outside the hospital and looking in at the father and the mother the mother has previously yes she's been ill she was supposed to return home um has been asked to stay for a few more days and i think that kick starts some of the fractures between the two in fact it does kick start the fracture between the two children um and i'm very much team my i should say right hashtag team my fine Um, that you believe that it's the mum should have returned home. Uh, more that more that I just I don't really care about. Me. I can't remember her name. What's her name? Satsuki. 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 I'm not. I uh, I don't care. I like I like Mai. I think Mai's far more interesting a character. Thoughts? Yes, she's much more expressive and being slightly younger. Um, she's untamed as well. So yes. Back to untamed qualities. She's you know. She feels things in various moments, and she uh, doesn't. She doesn't. You know, she almost like isn't a very consistent character, and that's what I quite like about her. There's a really funny bit in the movie where mine um, and the, the nanny turn up at Satsuki's school. Yeah, and Satsuki's like, I can't possibly, you know, I, I'm at school. I can't cut, and Mai's just sitting in the middle of the classroom, big grin on her face. Um, and she's, she becomes the focus of attention. It's also interesting, interesting that she's an artist. So in the school sequence, Mai is drawing yeah. cre- fantasy creatures. And so, again, if the children have somehow have access to a fantasy that the adults perhaps don't, but also the adults don't discredit, equally, Tatsuki and Mai's relationship ne- never fractures because of one's belief in the fantasy over the other. Should they we both... talk about animation briefly at that point as well? I, mean, I don't know if I have anything to say about it, but I feel, I feel we, we have been, we've, been, uh, we've been quite focusing on the fantasy, which I've been loving, but like, there's also something about drawing and expressing... We were talking about this last week, actually, on the podcast, about sort of why don't we consider the act of drawing mm. an act of fantasy quite as much as we do the act of telling a story. Well, it goes back um, to what you were saying about childhood. The, yeah. thing, the, the thing that connects fantasy and animation is is um, potentially the role of the, the child, that animation is considered a childish um, medium. That, that debate has really, been, has really been done to death, to the extent that, well, it's not a childish medium. It's aimed at children in some sense, but these are adults animating these films. So I, I mean, a ditto fantasy, exactly. same debate, same problem. So I wonder whether the slash between fantasy and animation is really the word childhood on its side. That actually, that yeah. the childhood is a really interesting place where, as a co- as a cultural social construct, right? yeah, mm-hmm. that has something to say about the the relationship that an- animation has to fantasy, that fantasy has to animation, and some of the terms of an animated fantasy. It's interesting in the case of Ghibli that that children become Ghibli, that that characters themselves are children, and I'm wondering, I'm trying to think of comparisons that that certainly. Disney films, Pixar to a lesser extent, but 
the, they're often not young young children. You know, if you think of Inside Out um, as Pixar's first real, I mean, a- Andy is a toy is a is a child in Toy Story, but he's not he's not the focus. Um, and I think the the continual focus on on the, the potential of the child protagonist in 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 the Ghibli films is something that that is is a way into thinking about the ro- the narrative role of, of of the fantasy for those characters. Is it an escape? Is it a set of characters? Is it a space that they travel travel to but return? Uh, in this instance. They don't. They move quite freely between the fantasy space and the real space. They go in and visit Toro and come back. The last shot of the film is to Toro sitting on top of a um, a tree, looking looking out. Well, the fantasy exists as part of that world. So, the resolution is as messy as the journey that got us there, in absolutely. some sense. Absolutely, absolutely. I think um, I think the resolution is as messy as the journey that got us there is probably an adequate description of this podcast yes. as well. So uh, that's probably a good point. Uh, put a full stop on this conversation hopefully well I'm sure we will get to some more studio uh, insert own comedy pronunciation uh, here uh, in the future and maybe I'll learn to pronounce some names properly by then Chris yes uh, where can they find where, where can people find you on Twitter so they can find you me as in my face. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's whispering. I'm not going to edit this out, so I don't know why you're whispering <laughs> right. it. Um, um, so yes. uh, you can find me at Chris Holiday Seven. You can find me at Freud is funny, and you can find us at Fan Anim Research. Please do uh, get involved with the conversations online. There, uh, we'd love to hear what you think about uh, some of the issues here. There's lots, lots to unpick in this movie, and it's a it's a fun one to do. And also hashtag Team My or hashtag. Team Satsuki. Team Satsuki. That would be nice. Uh, get that going on Twitter. and People won't understand what on earth we're all talking about. That's good. Um, but for now, thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.